Good morning. Brian, thank you for reminding us. I'm sure most of you have gathered here not to hear our amazing speaker who's a guest here today, but to find out who is the manliest man for 2012, right? Is that why you're all here? No, apparently not. Well, just in case you wanted to know, the manliest man is right there. He's the guy on staff, Mr. Jeff Earhart, manliest man 2012. Only, only repeat manliest man in the history of the manliest man games, by the way. So it's a distinct honor to have you in our midst, Jeff. What can we say? We're humbled. We're embarrassed as well, but. Uh, well, in just a moment, I'm going to introduce a dear friend and faithful minister of the gospel. I do want to say this. His schedule is tight this morning. He's got to catch a plane to get out. He's been with us this weekend. Uh, so. He's not being rude by running out the back door when he says amen. Uh, we're just trying to make sure he's able to get home today and not miss his flight. But this is a man, uh, I'm so grateful to have him finally come here to New Orleans because for, for years I can remember whether it was Gina and I or other members of the team who would travel to Sovereign Grace conferences. One of the highlights for us was going to be the, the truth imparted into our lives through Dave's ministry. Really, the, there's always much to receive at a Sovereign Grace Conference, but you know, as it is for any of our souls, there are certain places, certain niches that God finds, and quite often that niche would be found when we were there through something Dave had shared. And so his ministry has always been just a highlight for us to receive and benefit from. I know the men who were gathered here over the weekend to receive from Dave would share that testimony of insights that go into the deepest places of our soul and affect multiple categories of our lives. And so I know that's what we received over the weekend. I know you're going to receive that this morning as well. Uh, Dave has served the body of Christ for well over 20 years as a pastor. Uh, many of those years he was the senior pastor of Covenant Fellowship in Philadelphia. Um, he's from Pittsburgh. Where, where's T.C.? TC's got a pit. There you go. There's your, there's your Pittsburgh jersey. Enjoy. Man, yeah, kindred spirits right there. I can tell you guys have a lot in common. Um, but he's, he's from the Pittsburgh area, uh, pastored for many years in Philadelphia, continues to live in Philadelphia. He has served on the Sovereign Grace uh, Board of Leadership for over 15 years, uh, currently serving as the interim president of Sovereign Grace Ministries, and we are just grateful for the amount of work that requires from him and the insistence that even though there's a lot of stuff happening in Sovereign Grace that he has to give his attention to, uh, he did not want to give up this date to come be with us and connect with us. Uh, so he has deposited much into our lives already, but I'm so grateful that the ladies and some of the younger folks who are here this morning get a chance to receive what we've been receiving deeply from all weekend. So Dave, come minister to us, bro. Y'all welcome Dave as he comes. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Good morning. Thank you, Keith, for that very gracious introduction. And I just want to say how thrilled I am to be here. I mean, I've been looking forward and anticipating this weekend and this moment 
to be able to be with you. I've had a very rich time with the guys and uh, opportunities to fellowship, opportunities to meet some of the guys, hear their stories, and really enjoy God's grace among you and see some of the things that God is doing. And that's been, uh, that's been very thrilling for me to be able to experience and being with you. And it appears that congratulations are in order for your decisive victory last night. And I... As an Eagles fan, I know what it's like to get into the playoffs, but I'm not as accustomed to that jubilant feeling after the game uh, that you're experiencing right now. However, having grown up in the 70s in Pittsburgh, we were all over that every year, so I'm accustomed to it a bit from there, and I'm sure that's why Terrell's wearing the shirt. Um, Part of the reason why I'm excited to be here is because you would be a group of people that I've been hearing about for years. Uh, but I've never had the privilege of being with you uh, on a Sunday morning. So, yeah, you know, when I was growing up, my mom used to always talk about these, these cousins that we had in another part of the state. And she would always talk about how enjoyable they were and how interesting they were and, you know, part of the family. But I never met them. And uh, eventually we had this family reunion where everybody was pulled together. And uh, I got to meet some of the, my cousins. And I realized, oh, you're the face that goes with the name that other people have have talked about, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like you're, you're kind of the family that I've always heard about from Danny and from uh, Aaron and from, and from CJ, and, and today's the picnic, and <laughs> I get to attach the faces to the names, and so this is, this is great to just be with you, and I'm very grateful, and I, and I want to thank you for your understanding and me catching a flight today, having to rush out. I think the flight leaves at 1, Kim's going to pick me up at 4.30, we're going to go out on a date, and um, but that was the flight available this afternoon, so I want to thank you for your understanding in that as well. Okay, Romans chapter 4. Let's get there. The title of this morning's message is Faith for Barren Times. Faith for Barren Times. And as you can tell from the title, this is a message on the subject of faith. And I want to say right up front that I have not chosen this topic because I believe I embody this topic. I've chosen this topic because I desire faith and I've been studying faith and learning a bit about faith. And I want to convey to you some of the things that I've been learning in my study. And so that's part of what takes us to Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 18 through verse 21, but make comments on uh, 22 through 25 as well. Let's read beginning in verse 18. In hope, he, that's talking about Abraham, by the way, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 
Let's pray. Lord, I pray now as we together open your word, read your word, hear your word proclaimed, that you would feed us all, that you would inspire us all, that you would make connections and applications, Lord, and that you would cause there to be much glory that comes to your name from our lives after we leave this building and begin to apply and respond to your word. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. He had already lived 75 years. That's three quarters of a century. His name, Abram, literally meant father of many, a kind of stabbing irony for a man without kids. But he was wealthy, healthy, happy, and surrounded by extended family when one day God interrupts his rather, his rather settled existence with one incomprehensible command. God said to him, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you and I will make a great nation of you. Imagine a great nation springing from an old man with no kids. Now, how does that work? But Scripture says Abram obeyed. He uprooted his family, which at that point of his life included a nephew and servants and livestock and possessions. And he went forth, as Hebrews chapter 11 records, not knowing where he was going. And as he journeyed, he waited. Each week, each month, he waited. Every year, he waited. He waited for the promise to be fulfilled. Several years later, God kind of drops by in a vision. Abram is in an anguished state because he's, he's still childless. There is no heir. I just imagine him thinking at this point after years have passed, a great nation, great nation. I mean, I can't get anything going here. I'd settle for a great, a great county maybe, a great township, but where's this great nation? Where's this going to come from? How's this going to happen? And Scripture records that God took him outside and bid him to look up to the heavens. And God spoke to him these eternal words as he looked at the stars. He said, so shall your offspring be. And scripture said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now you might almost think that that's going to be the end of the story. That's going to be the end of the chapter. That's going to be, that's going to punctuate the main point of what God is doing in his life. But all of that actually took place before what I like to call the long wait. First couple of years weren't so bad. But you know, after seven or eight years, the memory grows dull. You begin to wonder, did that really happen? Is that really what God did? Did God really appear to me? I mean, Sarai is still barren and Abram is just aging. At year 10... Um, Mistakes were made. Sarai had to know, is it him or is it me? I want to know. I want to resolve this. I want closure on this. So she pushes Hagar and Abram as his wife. Abram capitulates. Ishmael is conceived. Arab history begins. 
But Ishmael is not the promised one. Another 14 years pass. God returns. God reaffirms his promise to Abram. He actually changes his name from Abram, father of many, to Abraham, father of a multitude. Abraham is now 99. Sarai's name has been changed to Sarah. She's been through menopause, and they only have one child, and the child is not Sarah's. It's the child of the slave woman. How long will they wait? One year later, 25 years after the promise, Isaac is born. Now, that's the story behind Romans chapter 4. In fact, if we were to look at the entirety of Romans chapters 1 through 3, we would discover that Paul, in the early chapters, kind of exposes the desperate state of human beings apart from God that we are depraved, that we are desperate apart from God and need God. And so from there, he kind of patiently and meticulously displays God's answer in the gospel, which is a righteousness that comes through faith alone. But as he's building his argument, as he's building his case in chapters 1 through 3, it's right here in chapter 4 that what Paul does is he introduces his strongest and most stunning piece of evidence for the position that he is setting forth, which is that he takes Abraham, the father, Abraham, the beginning of the Jewish lineage, and he offers him as exhibit A for saving faith. But here's the thing. And here's where I want to go with, with this message and, and this passage. While, while chapter 4 is about the faith that saves, chapter 4 is about the faith that justifies, we are also instructed about the nature of faith itself through this passage. In other words, all of the ingredients for a daily God-pleasing faith are seen in Abraham's faith, which is why the writer of Hebrews uses Abraham's example to call believers to persevere through faith in God. Because the faith that justifies also portrays the faith that pleases God. The faith that justifies also portrays the faith that helps us to persevere and to endure in life. And so we must understand this faith. We must understand God in light of this faith. And so let's just take some time and dissect Abraham's faith and examine what it might mean for us right here, right now, this morning. I've got three points I want to make to you in dissecting this. First is believing the promise. Believing the promise. Look at verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Now, Abraham had been told something by God, that he would become a father, that he would have a son. We are informed by this passage that faith responds by investing trust in God's words and standing on the promise today as if it is a reality that we have not yet experienced as if it is a reality that will come to us in the future, but we're still waiting for it. It is about trusting in the words of God more than simply trusting in 
an experience that we might have with God that's devoid of his words. You know, there's just a temptation when we read sections like this to think, yeah, yeah, I mean, if God came to me in a vision and kind of chatted with me about my future, then I think I could finally believe as well. As, as if faith rests upon having a supernatural experience with an angel or even a supernatural experience with God. But the problem with supernatural experiences, and I'm wide open to having them, by the way, but, but the problem with them is, is that memories fade. They faded for the Israelites, walking through the Red Sea, water on both sides, up out of it. Within a couple of weeks, they're not believing God. They're not trusting God. God's judging them. They faded for the Israelites. They faded for the kings. They faded for the prophets. They fade for us as well. Memories fade. At least mine does. I mean, last, last summer, I'm sitting in our community group, leader of our community group, Mark Prater. Uh, it's just a couple of weeks before my anniversary. Kim and I celebrated our 29th last year. And, and so uh, we're just sitting there. Kim and I are talking, talking to some other people. Mark calls a meeting to order. He said, hey, uh, Dave and Kim are going to be selling a, celebrating an anniversary soon. Dave and Kim, tell us a memory from your wedding day. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like a deer caught in the headlights. And I look at Kim, and she's the same way. And I begin... Like, you know, just searching the database, searching the mind, going back and forth. I know, I know that I've got important things that happened that most significant day apart from my conversion, most monumental life-defining experience that I've had apart from meeting Jesus Christ. And I'm searching and I'm trying to remember the day and what took place and I'm frantically trying to figure out. And I look at Kim and she's going through the same thing. And you know what it's like to be a married couple? You kind of prompt each other with your eyes and you're trying to say to her, come on, dear, you can think of something. And she's trying to say, no, 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 it's you. You, you need to think of something. And I'm realizing, I think, you know, I'm looking down at my hand. I've got a ring on my finger. I know I'm married. I know it took place at some point. But there's a big drop off between that day and right now. Because even memories of big experiences can fade. Here's my point. Abraham didn't stand on the vague memory of an experience. God spoke, and he added something to that. God spoke, and he believed. He drove his stake of confidence right there. Now, for us, the promises of God are preserved and contained in our Bible. Listen, if you're not working your Bible, it's impossible to grow in faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God of Christ. We've got to be working our Bible. We've got to be working the promises of God into our life and resting and trusting in them and reciting them and making them our own. But let's for a moment just take this point on believing the promise and, and let's, let's apply it. In fact, let's just start with the context of justification by faith, which is a primary point in Romans chapter 4. Let, let's say you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, Dave, you know, i got to be honest with you. I, I look at my past, and I look at my mistakes, and I look at my sins and the stupid things I've done, and it makes me wonder, how could God possibly accept me? How could God possibly approve of me? How could God ever see me as anything but what I am? How could he see me as pure? How could he see me as righteous? 
Romans chapter 4 announces to us a righteousness that has been counted to us, that comes from outside of us, that is, that is imputed to us. Actually, look at verse 23. We didn't read this earlier, but, but, uh, but the words, it was counted to him, that's the righteousness, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Which means if we confess our sins with our mouth and we believe in our heart that God raised raised Jesus from the dead, we will be saved. We will experience the transfer of that, that righteousness. It is a promise from God that helps us believe in God. In the real moments of life. Which is what we're all after, I think. Let's say you're in a season of, of extended trial. You know, you've maybe lost your job or unexpected expenses have come up in this season. And, and you know, you begin to feel that gnawing anxiety in the pit of your stomach. You know what I'm talking about. You, you find yourself waking up in the middle of the night and kind of ruminating over scenarios of your own demise, of how you're going to, to, uh, to, to fail and fall and be financially bankrupt and have all of these problems that you never expected and your fears are fomenting and you're experiencing worry. Well, faith in that moment does not, does not say, God, I'm worried, I'm fretting, appear to me in a vision right now. No, faith says, well... God has already revealed himself to me in his word. So let me go to his word to hear his promise for my problem. And maybe you can go to Matthew chapter 6 and refer to verses 31 through 34. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. See, it's in the word of God that we encounter these extraordinary promises for necessary provision when we need them. And we can walk right through different life scenarios and see how God's word can apply to give us hope for the future. You know, maybe you're here as a teenager, and, and, uh, and you know the fifth command calls you to honor your mother and father. But in your opinion, your parents aren't honorable. You disagree with them. You have a different perspective than them. You just think that they don't see things, and they, they don't really understand the world. Now, Ephesians calls that fifth command the first command with a promise that it may go well with you, it says, and that you may live long in the land that you prosper. So what do you do? Do you elevate your perspective on your discernment above your parents and just evaluate your parents, or are you somehow committed to give honor to them? And if you are committed to give honor to them and you're supposed to give honor to them, why are you supposed to do that? Well, because the Word of God calls us to act in the present with honor Because we believe something about the future. We believe that there will be a blessing that God has for us in the future. But it's not just that. It's mostly that God will be pleased as we seek to obey him in the present. See, the idea here is that faith is based on allowing Scripture 
to be louder to us than the voices in the world, to be scripture, allow Scripture to be louder to us than the other voices that are always speaking, louder than our feelings, for instance. You know, here's the thing. To be alive is to always have voices speaking. Our fears speak. Our circumstances speak. Our enemies speak. Our suffering speaks. Here's what, here's what God says. Faith trusts what God says about the future more than what those voices say in the present. Faith trusts what God says about my future more than what those voices say in the present. And here's the question we have to wrestle with this morning. Which voices matter most to you? Abraham had to wrestle through that. And actually he did. And one of the answers is of where he ended up is supplied for us in verse 21. He became, quote, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And he rested in that settled conviction that God was able to do what he had promised. His heart became fully convinced. You know why? Because God said it. It's not like he had anything else. It's not like his circumstances began to change. He became fully convinced before the circumstances began to change. God said it. He believed it. It was God's word and God's word alone. I brought a great great quote along by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He once wrote, quote, There is always this naked element in faith. It does not ask for proofs. It does not seek them. In a sense, it does not need them. Faith is content with the bare word of God. Oh, how I want to be content with the bare word of God. Don't you? I know you do. God will help us. Second point, embracing the circumstances. Believing the promise, embracing the circumstances. Listen to these words from verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You know what I love about that passage? In fact, you know what I love about this description of what was really going on is that it links faith to reality. You would almost expect if this was an accurate report for them to shade the truth, Paul to shade the truth a little bit. But in reality, there's, there's no denial of the significance of the problems. There's no spin. There's no dumping of the evidence. There's just an unvarnished assessment of how bad things really are. In fact, verse 18, in hope he believed against hope, that, that's just another way to say it was pretty hopeless. It was pretty hard. Do you see what's happening here? There's no attempt to avoid the raw truth of how bad things really were, of how desperate things really were. There's no attempt to avoid that because avoiding or because giving voice to the raw truth might reinforce negative thoughts or stir unbelief. You know, there's a body of faith teaching that exists today that assumes that that voicing the reality of a situation is really empowering the problem or is really emboldening the enemy to act. And, And it makes Christians appear, I mean, how can I say this delicately? It makes Christians appear like lunatics, 
denying the reality of how bad things really appear to be. You know, you just, you're there. No, no, I'm not sick. <coughs> I'm not sick. I'm, it just appears like I'm throwing up blood here. I already have all the healing that I've, I need and that I've received. Well, listen, bro, if that's your healing, you better trade it up for another one because that one ain't working for you, you know? In light of the unreality that some Christians can be tempted to walk in, isn't this a refreshing passage? He didn't weaken in faith when he considered, he's thinking about it, he's considering it honestly, he considers his own body, he says, you know, I'm considering my own body, and well, to be honest, it's as good as dead because I'm 100 years old. And I look at Sarah, and she's pretty barren. In fact, she's very barren. And so Abraham is considering his circumstances. He's considering the reality, and he comes to this conclusion. The results ain't pretty. Abraham's standing there. He's saying, you know, I look in the mirror at my body, and it's as good as dead. Now, because he's a guy, he's saying, but it's a dashing kind of hip kind of dead. It's a better than any hundred, other 100-year-old kind of dead. Better than the manliest man kind of dead. But it's still dead. I look at Sarah. She's 90. I love her. She's beautiful to me. She's a babe, but she's a barren, beautiful woman. She's barren. It's gone. See, this is what this section is supposed to communicate to us. We look at Abraham. It's impossible. We look look at Sarah. It's incomprehensible. Everywhere you look is dead. There is no seed, no hope, no way, no life, no possibility for life. It's almost as if the circumstances all around him are speaking as a jury. They've come back together and they're returning this verdict. It's impossible. There is no life. That's intentional. Abraham believed when there was no life. I wonder if you have any areas this morning where you are burdened by an absence of life. You know, when you go to apply verse 19 and you get gut level honest about the situation, you realize, oh, it's bad. It's bad. And it appears beyond hope. It appears beyond the natural. It appears outside of the reach of my leadership, my intellect, my ingenuity, my enterprise. There's nothing that I can bring to this that's going to change anything. It is bad. The circumstances reveal barrenness. Maybe you've been praying for this person for years and you love them. Deep in your heart, you love them. And you've been praying for their conversion. But if you are gut level honest this morning, you realize there is no change, no interest, no life. Or maybe you've been dogged by this particular sin since you've been a teenager. And when you get gut level honest with yourself, you realize, you know what? In this area, there's been very little change. In this area, there's no change. There's no interest. There's no power. There's nothing going on. It seems like there's no life. Maybe you have a vision to give. God is stirring your heart to begin to give to the poor or give to your community or give to this local church and begin to, begin to tithe or whatever. But you look at your, your, your checkbook, you look at your bank account and you realize there's no extra, no buffers, no miracles, no life. Or you look at your kids, 
You look at your child, you look at your teenager, and you think, they have been given so much by God, and yet they are bearing so little fruit for God. There is no zeal, no heart, no interest, no life. All around me is barrenness. Who can relate to that? God says, Abraham can relate to that. And not just for a short season either. This wasn't your typical two to three year trial that every believer goes through. This was 25 years. In fact, it appears as if God intentionally waited until it was too late, until it just appeared as if it was too late. Think about it. The the problems here are not just barrenness, but age. It's not just that there's an absence of life. What this text is communicating intentionally is that on behalf of Abraham and Sarah, there was an utter inability to produce life. When they enjoyed one another physically, an utter inability to produce life. His body as good as dead. Her condition barren. It's all there intentionally. Remember where this starts. Verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope. He believed when it was hopeless. Here's the thing that that happened, and and please make the connection between Abraham and your situation. God brought Abraham to a place where it was evident to him and everyone else around him that this was way beyond man. That if there's going to be any change in this situation whatsoever, it's not going to become, it's not going to come because there's some human wisdom that's applied, because there's some new approach, some new methodology, some great new ingenuity that I can bring to this. This is beyond human leadership. If there's going to be a change, it has to come from some kind of outside supernatural intervention. It has to come from God and God alone. You know, sometimes God just works in our life in seasons where he wants to take us back to the point of the whole thing. He wants to remind us of how this whole thing started. And because sometimes we think the way this whole thing started is different than the way the program plays out. We think it started with God and God alone, but then it all falls upon me. And so God will bring us into seasons where it really is, everything's barren. And we look at ourselves, and we just don't have it in ourselves to bring about any change. And we've given the best we can, and there isn't the fruit we expected. We've given the best we can, and all around us is barrenness. And God takes us back in different seasons of the Christian life to remind us that this whole thing has always been about him and his work. That our salvation, the the first day of the whole thing was not about us. It was about God and God alone. It was his work and his work alone. I mean, maybe maybe you're here this morning and and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian or you're not sure you're a Christian and kind of the way you're thinking about this, which is understandable, is you kind of wait, you're waiting to clean up your life so that you can present to Jesus a a better version of yourself, a cleaner version of yourself. And so this idea of trust is a, is a real tripping point. You kind of relate to conversion, like going through customs. You know, if you, if you ever travel internationally, you, 
you have to go through customs. And so you arrive at the airport in whatever country it is, and, and you, uh, you've got the guy or the lady sitting up at the desk, the customs agent, and everybody's in line, and they're waiting. And, and as you're standing in line, you're just waiting to make sure, are all my papers in place? Or do I have everything I have? I need my pa- passport. I need, I need it stamped correctly. I need my visa. I need these other things that pulled together. I've got to make sure all the form, the landing form, the entrance form, it's all filled out correctly. Because all, eventually, I'm going to get before the customs agent, and I'm going to present it to them. And if they look and determine all the papers are where they need to be, then they'll stamp me, and I'll be able to get into the country. And that's how we relate to salvation. I've got to put all my papers together. I've got to clean up my life. I've got to make sure everything is in order so that then I can present this to God and he'll stamp me and let me into his kingdom. Not realizing that we could never have our papers right. That they'll never be pulled together. Actually, if we want to extend the metaphor, it's not our papers at all that get us into the country. It's almost like we're standing there and Jesus comes along and says, you know what, I'll take this one. And he goes up to the custom agent and presents his credentials and those get stamped and we get into the country based upon his works. That's where it all starts. But it's funny how often we think that it's not going to continue that way. Maybe you're here and, and you're still waiting for a promise to be fulfilled because God is really removing all of you so that you'll know it's all of him. You know, just this sense where God will reserve the right. He's audacious sometimes that way. Oh, yeah, he is. He'll, he'll have the audacity to move us into a season, into a situation, in relationship to the children, in relationship to the marriage. Maybe it's that boss at work where God will not act on his word until he alone will be the answer, which ultimately means he will not act upon his word until he alone will get the glory for the change that will come. And here's the thing. A a change did come for Abraham, a rather remarkable change. Abraham went from being circumstance-centered to being promise-centered. There was a transformation that took place. In fact, eventually it was said of him, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. No distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he didn't start there. It says he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. See, There's a growth, there's change, there's a transformation that God wants us to enjoy and that God is initiating in our life. And it may be being initiated in your life through the very circumstances you're thinking of right now. And that leads me to our last point. Embracing the circumstances, sustaining the trust, believing the promise, embracing the circumstances, sustaining the trust. The trust. Look at verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now check this out because this is a little bit more on how this transformation took place. Abraham, please, please listen because this is really important to understanding Abraham's story. Abraham came to a place where it was actually the unchangeableness of his circumstances that altered his faith. 
It was his response, not to changing circumstances, but to the unchangeableness of his circumstances that ultimately caused the encounter with God, that ultimately altered his faith. He met God, in other words, in the barrenness. Not, not in the change. See, what I'm saying here is, like for me, so often, um, faith sparks when I see hopeful signs in a situation. Are you like that? You know, you're in the middle of the heat, you're in the trial, you're having the problem, and, and nothing seems to be changing, but then, but then you end up seeing some small change, and you use that as the trigger, you use that as the key. And actually what that does is that orients us to always be looking for small hopeful signs rather than looking to God. And the small hopeful signs give us a good day or they give us a bad day. And that's why we end up talking too much about our problems. You know, you talk, we talk a lot. Well, it's a good thing. Have fellowship, share your burdens, pray. But sometimes we just get into this talk therapy around trials where we're basically trying to talk ourselves into faith, rehearsing everything that's wrong, trying to get something from another person that will only come from God. And that's what I'm like. I wait for the hopeful sign, and then I start exercising faith towards God. The point of this passage is Abraham didn't do that. He came to terms with who God was in the barrenness of the situation. And I'm sure his experience was just like ours. I mean, I'm sure he passed through all the phases that you go through in the middle of a trial. You know, first you're in the denial of the circumstances, and then you're angry about the circumstances, and then you're demanding before God through certain psalms that there are changes that must take place. And eventually we come to terms with it, and we begin to accept it, and then we begin to anticipate that God was going, is going to move. But here's where Abraham got to. He gave glory to God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. You say, Dave, how did he do it? This is remarkable. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Oh, you mean he he saw some hopeful sign and he gave glory to God? No, no, no. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God in the midst of the barrenness. He looks in the mirror, he sees himself, 100 years old, good as dead. He looks at Sarah, barren, he gives glory to God. That's who I want to be. That's who I want to be. Because ultimately what that means is that for this person, the circumstances didn't change, but his faith did. His faith grew strong. His tongue glorified God. His faith was revealed by a sustained trust in God. Have you ever noticed as you evaluate the history of your Christian life how sometimes it just pleases God to fix a pain and a promise in your life at the same time? And and to have the pain and the promise play out over a long period of time? I mean, let's remember, Abram, you know, Abram meant father of many. He was named that as a baby, father of many. What kind of expectations does that load on a guy? I mean, I'm sure as a kid, this was a source of pride for him, this a proclamation of a prodigious future, which is just another way to say, this is a guy that expected to have tons of kids, strapping boys and dainty girls. Huge family awaited him. And Abraham takes his bride, and they start their life together, and the kids don't come. 
And one month leads to six months, leads to 12 months, leads to two years and four years, and the kids don't come. And the seven years and the 10 years and the 12 years, and the kids don't come. Facebook profile reads, father of many, still no kids. Kids don't come. It was worse, I'm sure, when the caravans came through. It was customary back then for the wealthy landowner, like Abram, who owned the wells for many miles. It was customary for the travelers that would come in to pay a well-use fee, and then they would visit the owner, and then there was, when they would visit, this inevitable exchange that would take place. It was customary back then, this inevitable exchange. The traveler would come in, and he would announce to the owner, what is your name? This probably happened thousands of times. What is your name? I am Abram, father of many. I am Abram. Oh, Abram, father of many, congratulations. Where are your sons and how many children have you? I have none. Thousands of times, I have none. I'm sure there are some here that can probably relate to the pain, to the disappointment, to the monthly morass of demoralizing thoughts that come from wanting but not having children, of having to respond to outsiders, having to respond to one's parents. No, once again, we have none. Eventually, it would become so bad that Sarai actually pushed him into the arms of another woman, perhaps even out of the bitterness of wanting to know who was really at fault, of wanting to know who was really responsible. Let's see who lacks life here, Abram. I want to know, is this you or is this me? I have none. Sure, there was a promise, but it took 25 years to be fulfilled. And towards the end, at year 24, all they had was Ishmael. God changes his name from Abram, father of many, to Abraham, father of the multitude. He's being upgraded, and all he has is the son of a slave and a promise. And a promise. Listen, please don't imagine that this wasn't a source of shame for Abram. And Sarai, please don't imagine that this wasn't difficult each and every day, each and every week. Please don't imagine that they weren't the objects of misunderstanding from family and friends and perhaps even judgments about what really took place, that they're being judged and without children. Please don't imagine they weren't the object of rude comments. And please don't imagine either that this wasn't essential to God's purpose in Abraham's life because ultimately it created a work and a confidence that was so deep that this man was willing to sacrifice the very child that he had waited 25 years to have, very child that he had waited 25 years to conceive and, and in so doing to portray a vision of the Savior who had come where the hand of the angel would not be stayed and would be sacrificed on our behalf for the sins of God's people. 
but more important to the purposes of this book, it, it forged a man of whom it could be said in verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What an inspiring story this proves to be. And it, it raises a question for me, and it should raise a question. Actually, let me pose it to you as well. How, how are you doing in your season between the promise and the fulfillment? Are, are you patiently waiting for God? Or have you been conceiving Ishmael's? <laughs> You know, in Galatians 4, Paul says Ishmael symbolizes the child of the flesh. In other words, Ishmael symbolizes the the self-sufficient choices that we make where we don't want to trust God. And so we say, you know what, God, I've had it with the waiting thing. I've had it with trying to wait around for you to get your act together and work in this area of my life. I'm just going to take it upon myself to bring this about. And so we displace God, take it upon ourselves. And birth an Ishmael. See, Ishmaels are conceived when impatience marries unbelief. Ishmael is the birth child. When impatience joins my demands, I want it and I want it now. Ishmael is the birth child. So we can't afford it. Uh, We don't really need it. But we want it. And so we slap down a credit card and we buy it. And we've been paying for it ever since. It's Ishmael with interest. <laughs> or, or, or he's not a Christian. She's not a believer, but, but he's so close. And she seems like she's inclined to the things of God. And so I'll marry him. And I'll wait and hope. Because they're the only person in the area or the only person in my relational network who seems to have any potential for a future relationship. And then fast forward 10 years and I've been living with the mistake for the last decade. It's it's Ishmael with what can seem to be irreconcilable differences. Or if I just tell this little lie, if I just fudge this report, if I just shade this truth or just confess half of what I need to confess, then I can get what I want. Then I can get the promotion or the forward progress or my parents off my back or out of trouble or I can keep my secret concealed. Never knowing how we see, never knowing the effect that that has on our soul, never realizing how much that can deaden our soul and obscure the promises of God. It becomes Ishmael at any cost. And if we were honest this morning, some of us would be reporting that our Ishmaels stare at us each and every day, a kind of daily reminder of the fruitlessness of our own effort. But you know what? If that that discourages you this morning, or you think in some way describes you this morning, I want you to think about this, because this is really important. Abraham is offered in Scripture as someone who got faith right. And Ishmael is embedded in his story. 
So Abraham is not offered in Scripture as someone who was perfect in faith or perfect as a believer in God. He just points forward to someone else who would come who would be perfect and would live the perfect life in perfect conformity to God's law in all things and at all times. And because Jesus lived that perfect life and died that substitutionary death, he has authority and power to redeem us and to reverse the effects of the bad fruit, to reverse the effects of Ishmael on our lives, and to transform us. And that's wonderful news this morning because that means that our fleshly choices, those places in the past where we didn't trust God, we displaced God and just said, we'll do it and we'll do it on our own. Those fleshly choices need no longer define us. That means we don't need to spend the rest of our life trying to atone for the mistakes of the past, to atone for the sins of the past, because we look to the atonement of another. Because it says in verse 23, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And so like Abraham, yeah, our Ishmaels may live on, but they're written into a bigger story that passes through the cross and redeems us despite our past, despite our sins, despite our mistakes, despite our failures, despite our Ishmaels. And you know what? Abraham trusted this. It's how he was able to grow strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And God wants to inspire in us through his Holy Spirit a similar confidence that we too might grow strong in our faith and give glory to God. Not because our circumstances have changed, but just because God is big regardless of our circumstances. Our vision of God is bigger than our vision of our circumstances. And God speaks louder than our circumstances. And that's my prayer for myself. And it's my prayer for you as well. May God help us see the Savior so clearly that the promises are more real than our circumstances. And then we can give glory to God right here, right now. Doesn't need to wait until tomorrow. Doesn't need to wait for a hopeful sign. Doesn't need to wait for some kind of change so that we use that and key off of that and really make that our faith rather than God our faith. We can give glory to God right here, right now. Not because our circumstances have changed, but because our faith has. Our faith has. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray because even as we read this passage, even as I spoke these words, I'm keenly aware that there are a number of people throughout this room that are in trial, that are suffering right now. And Lord, they can locate themselves in verse 19 of seeing no hopeful signs. In hope, they're believing against hope. And... They are considering their body, they are considering their spouse, they are considering the circumstances, and it don't look good. Lord, I pray for these, your children, and ask that you would meet them now 
in the midst of their suffering. And that you would inspire their vision of you. And that you would also arm them and you would inspire their vision by arming them with promises from your word. So, Lord, my prayer is not first that circumstances would change. My prayer is that they would find in your word promises that would speak to them, promises that speak to their situation, and that they would find you in those promises. And so the result of this is though, that we together will give glory to God that we will not waver in our faith, but give glory to God despite the fact that the circumstances are changing or not. Lord, we look forward to changing circumstances because we believe that, that you'll do that as well. But we're not investing our hope in that for the future because we trust you and we love you regardless of what the future holds. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.